The text this morning is from Romans chapter 1, the first four verses. These are the words of God. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit's presence here with us, in us, and among us. We thank you for all of that, and we pray that your spirit would take this word and teach and instruct us. I pray that we'd go from this place knowing more about your purpose for this world and your purpose for us. We commit it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing to go through... um, different portions of the definition of Chalcedon. This is something that we recite every Advent season, and we don't want to just recite things mindlessly. We want to know what we're talking about or know what we're talking about to the extent that it's possible to know what we're talking about, and we'll get to a little bit more of that shortly. So as we reflect on the mystery of the Incarnation, we have to recognize that we are dealing with a staggering miracle. And the miraculous aspect of it has to do with what Chalcedon confesses of the one person, Jesus of Nazareth. The miracle didn't happen at Bethlehem. The miracle began nine months prior when Mary conceived and you had the eternal God, the the eternal uh, divine nature combined, joined together with a single human cell. That's a miracle. And so, this is the person, Jesus of Nazareth. He's one person with two natures, and those natures are conjoined, but not jumbled and not confused and not parceled out. It's not like he's 50% man, 50% uh, God. It's not as though it's 99-1. It's not as though he's man on the outside and God on the inside. It's not anything, it's not jumbled or confused. These two natures in their entirety, are conjoined in one person, Jesus of Nazareth. That is the mystery. That is what we confess. That is what the gospel rests upon. Now, in this introduction to the epistle to the Romans, the Apostle Paul mentions three things that are right at the heart of what we're going to be addressing today. These three things in these four verses Um, give us the basic ingredients of why the Christian church had to come to a statement like the statement at Chalcedon. The The first of these three things is that Paul refers to one person, God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's in verse 3. He refers to this one person concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's referring to one uh, individual, one person. The second thing is that according to the flesh, Jesus was a Davidson. You would have looked him up in the phone book under the D's. He was a son of David. He was a Davidson, Jesus ben David. He was descended from that great king of Israel, verse 3. He had a mother. He had a hometown. He graduated from Nazareth High. And somebody signed his yearbook, right? Well, that seems kind of, you're, you're making this kind of mundane. Well, the whole point is that Jesus entered the realm of the mundane. 
Jesus entered this world. He, he grew up in a town. He was uh, identified as someone being from Nazareth. He was a Galilean. He had particular characteristics. He had fingernails. The third thing that is mentioned is that he's declared to be the son of God through his resurrection, verse 4. Now notice that this is when he was declared to be the son of God, not when he became the son of God. So we're not talking about some sort of adoption where you had a, a sinless human being, but only a human being, and then at some point the Christ spirit came upon him and, and uh, did something at some point. No, uh, Jesus was fully divine and fully human uh, from the moment of conception on. So he's declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Now, you notice throughout his ministry, Jesus, when, somebody, uh, when someone confesses or when a demon confesses who Jesus was, they, they confess, you are the Son of God, Jesus tells them to keep it quiet. Jesus says, keep it down. Don't talk to anybody about that. Quiet, silence. I believe he was waiting until the Father made the declaration. When the Father made the declaration by his resurrection from the dead, now it's permissible for us to go tell everyone who Jesus is because we're echoing what the Father has said. What the Father has said is that Jesus is the Son of God, and he made that declaration by having him be the firstborn from the dead. So those are three elements. Jesus is one person in these four verses. Jesus is, according to the flesh, descended from David, Jesus is, by his resurrection, declared to be the Son of God. So here's the heart of the matter. In Chalcedon, it says, quote, uh, we, quote, teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, there's the one person, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. Notice it's not mostly God, mostly man. It's complete in Godhead, complete in manhood, truly God, and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. So Jesus is one with us with regard to humanity. He is one with God with regard to his deity. And there is a fusion point. There is a point of union between those two things. And that union is Jesus of Nazareth. That union is the one person. So here it is in a nutshell. What can be predicated of one nature can be predicated of the person. What you say about one nature, you can say of the person. What you can say about God, you can say about Jesus. What is predicated of the other nature can be predicated of the person. What can be, if you say that Jesus was six feet tall, for example, you can say that you, if you can say that this human nature was six feet tall, you can say Jesus of Nazareth was six feet tall. This is because those two natures are conjoined, and this conjoining is the miracle of miracles. How do you take infinitude and finitude and put them together and have them? Fused, united, joined. Um, theologians call this joining the hypostatic union. The word hypostasis simply means person. So when they say the hypostatic union, they're talking about the personal union, and it's a this this personal union is made up of one person, Jesus of Nazareth. So one person, two natures, and he's two, the two natures do not result in 
some sort of schizophrenia, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. So what's predicated, what's predicated of one nature can be predicated of the person. What's predicated of the other nature can be predicated of the person. But what's predicated of one nature cannot be predicated of the other nature. That would entail us in flat contradiction. We would say infinity is finite. All right. That's, uh, you cannot say that deity is humanity and humanity is deity. You can say Jesus is God, Jesus of Nazareth is God, and you can say Jesus of Nazareth is man, but you cannot say deity is humanity because that involves you in a flat contradiction. Not, so what we're talking about here, as I'm going to uh, address shortly, and what we're talking about here is above reason, but it's not against reason. We may not reason in this way. You cannot reason Jesus was six feet tall, Jesus is God, deity is therefore six feet tall. You can't reason that you're making, if you, get, if you start doing something like that, you're making a mistake. You might be tempted to think, well, of course not. Whoever would think that deity was six feet tall. But neglect of this principle has gotten numerous people in trouble. An example of that would be Jesus is God. Mary is the mother of Jesus. So Mary is the mother of God. No, Mary's not the mother of God. She doesn't give birth to deity. She's the mother of the one who is God. She gives birth to Christ according to his flesh. According to his flesh, he's descended from David. According to his flesh, he was born of the virgin Mary. She does not generate deity. She bears deity, and that's what we confessed this morning. We use the word theotokos in the creed. Is, um, means God-bearer. She carried the one who is God. She is the God-bearer, but she is, she is not the source in any way, the source of deity. So she is the mother, according to the flesh, of the one who is God. Now, I said a moment ago that this mere fact is the miracle of miracles. In the person of the Lord Jesus, we have a bridge over the creator-creature divide. The creator-creature divide is an infinite chasm. God is infinite. We are finite. God is unlimited. We are limited. Uh, and that creator-creature divide is, cannot be crossed or bridged by any of us. But what man cannot cross, God could and did cross. And he did it in Jesus of Nazareth. So in the Lord Jesus, in this one person, in this personage, we have a bridge over that infinite gulf. But why? why would, what would possess us as Christians to paint ourselves into this glorious corner? Why do we talk this way? Well, we do it because of our faith in Scripture, because we, we believe that the, the Bible is God's Word delivered to us. We read it, and we read it again, and we read it again, and we notice what is said about Jesus. And when we notice, we plot, we plot these claims that are made about Jesus. And then, having plotted all these claims, having laid it out on paper, we then have to harmonize them. We have to bring them together into our minds. Well, we do it because of our faith in Scripture. Scripture tells us things that we, if we believe those Scriptures, must harmonize. And as we harmonize, we realize that we're pointing to things, as I said a moment ago, we're pointing to things that are above reason, not things that are against reason. I do not say A and not A at the same time. I don't say this is the case and it's not the case, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying anything like that. I'm saying it would be absurd to say that Jesus is finite, and in the same way in respect, he's not finite. 
That would be a contradiction. To say that the square is a circle is a contradiction. All right, so we're not contradicting reason, but we, sim- we certainly are going beyond our capacity to get our heads around it. Think of the creeds this way. The creeds are not um, attempts to do the math. Creeds are not, to, let's sit down, let me, let me sketch out on the board how the infinite God could be conjoined with human nature, finite human nature, and be one person. I can't do the math, and if I could do the math, which I can't, you wouldn't follow it. No, we can't do the math. What the creeds do is, and that means that in everything we confess, from creation out of nothing, to God's sovereignty and human responsibility, to uh, this doctrine, the doctrine of the incarnation, the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, all of these basic doctrines are, are doctrines that we can accept and believe and understand, and we can know what we're not saying by them. But what the creeds do is they give us, they put up guardrails and they say, look, everything you confess about ultimate transcendent things as finite beings, everything you confess will be over your head. Consequently, God says, I want you to stand in certain places when you confess them. We don't know what we're talking about. That's why we have to stand in certain safe places in order to talk about the things that we cannot get our minds around. So when we, when we get past those barriers, we try to start making sense of it in a, in a carnal way, and we run ourselves into heresy. That's where we say, well, Jesus was man on the outside and God on the inside, but that's not a man. That's the appearance of a man. That's a lie. That's not an incarnation. That's a lie. All right? a, a man like that, God appearing like a man, can't save any of us. So, You want to make sure that you don't resolve it like 99% God, 1% man, 99% man, 1% God. When you you start uh, tackling it that way, you get into heresy. So we want to make sure that we are speaking above reason because Scripture requires it of us. We're not speaking contrary to reason. There's a crucial difference between them. Many years ago, I was speaking to a woman who belonged to the JWs, and we were talking about the Trinity, and she said that she refused to believe in a God that she couldn't understand. That was her claim. I refuse to believe in a God that I can't understand. So in the first place, think about how sad that is. I can only believe in a God who's little better than an imp or a fairy, you know, running around in the crawl space up a Uh, a little bit above me, like a little tiny Zeus. I can only believe in a God that I can comprehend, that I can get my mind around. That's just plain sad. But we should also, in the second place, realize how impossible it is. It's impossible. I asked her if she believed that God was infinite, and she said yes. And so I asked her to explain infinity for me. Could you please explain infinity in a way that makes sense to me personally? We can't do it. We're finite. We can't take in infinity. Uh, We can't understand any of... We can't understand... If if by understanding you mean doing the math, if by understanding you mean getting your mind completely around, we can't understand the incarnation. We can't understand creation from nothing. We can't understand God's sovereignty and human responsibility. We can't understand any of the basic doctrines of the Christian faith if we demand understanding at the level of being able to do the math. What we do is we confess what Scripture requires us to confess. That's what we do. That's the only safe place to stand. What does the Bible require of us? Now, 
Read through the Gospels, and the most obvious thing that strikes you will be this. Jesus of Nazareth was a singular personality. Jesus of Nazareth is an overpowering personality, and he's a unified, integrated personality. There's never been anyone like him. In all the annals of history, there's no one like the Lord Jesus. In everything he does, we see a glorious consistency and unity. Whether we read the scriptural accounts as believers or as unbelievers, you can read through the four Gospels as an unbeliever, and the personality of Christ will hit you in the face like opening a, a, a stove that's at 400 degrees. It's just going to hit you. So, the person of Christ strikes us as a unitary force to be reckoned with. We are dealing with Jesus of Nazareth, not with Jekyll and Hyde, and not with someone with a schizophrenic multiple personality disorder. That would be Legion, living in the tombs, and not the Lord, who was the most fully integrated person who ever lived. That was an aspect of his perfection. When you encounter Jesus in the Gospels, you are meeting someone who is together. Everything about him is together. And he strikes you that way. He's always in command of every situation. He is together. Everything that, that is an aspect of his being is unified and unified in perfection. But then, when we go up close and look at it closely, what happens? What does this perfection look like? Well, we have to reckon with two distinct things, and that is what Chalcedon does. Remember in the first uh, four verses here in Romans, we have the one person, the singular personality, one person, Jesus of Nazareth, and then we look closely at scripture, reading the Bible over and over again. We see certain things that are said about him, and then we see other things that are said about him, and we're Christians, so we confess them all. Let's talk about how Christ was fully man. When we read carefully, we see the scriptural testimony that Christ participated in all the limitations of human nature. All the limitations of human nature Jesus experienced. He knew what it was to be thirsty. John 19, 28. On the cross, he says, I thirst. Jesus knew what it was to be thirsty. He was tired enough to be able to sleep in a tempest. Matthew 8, 24, when he was asleep in the back of the boat, Jesus would get exhausted and tired, and he went to sleep. And the disciples had, a, had the storm didn't wake him up. The disciples had to. In Mark 10, 32, Jesus walked to get places. Jesus walked on the road with his disciples behind him. He walked to get where he was going. He needed to ask for information. Mark 5, 31. You remember when the woman with the hemorrhage comes up, there's a crowd pressing on him, and the woman with the hemorrhage comes up and touches him surreptitiously, and Jesus feels power drain out of him. He feels power go from him, but he didn't know who touched him. So he looks around and says, who touched me? He knows that someone touched him. He, he knew that he had healed somebody, <clears throat> but he didn't know who it was. So he looked around and said, who touched me? The disciples said, what are you talking about? Pretty much everybody here touched you. Every, this crowd was pressing in on you. What do you mean? Jesus said, no, I feel power went out for me. Who touched me? And then the woman came and confessed that she had done it. He said, your faith has made you whole. And he sent her on his way. But he needed to ask, who did that? If someone, said, uh, someone might say, um, 
for example, that uh, Jesus was just messing with his disciples, like, um, like he was when he said, where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? Right? That, that would be an example, not of Jesus asking a true question, but of Jesus testing his disciples. But I don't think that's what this was here. And then there's another place where it says that Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, only the Father, the Son, the Son of Man himself, doesn't know the day of his appearing again. So Jesus experienced true limitation. In short, he was a man. In Hebrews 4.15 it says, For we have not a high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The only part of our humanity that Jesus did not participate in was our sinning, and even that he took upon himself at the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, He who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf. Jesus knew no sin, he never sinned, but he experienced sinfulness. He was made sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. So, Jesus experienced sinfulness. Even in, even in the middle, when, when our sin was imputed to him, even in the midst of that, even with his cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he says that, he is quoting scripture, he's quoting the Psalms, it's still my God, my God. He's, he's trusting the Lord. He is not sinning. He is not a sinner. But he's experiencing the sin, your sin and my sin, imputed to him. So he experienced our sinfulness without ever sinning himself. In all of this, we see that Jesus was no ghost. First John 1. John says, that which we've, uh, we, we've seen him, we've heard him, our hands have touched him. He was incarnate. He was there. Jesus was photographable. All right, we can thank the Lord, given the propensity of man to idolatry, that nobody did photograph him because people would be worshiping those pictures. But that's a separate. He was there, tangible. The, the, his disciples could remember what he looked like. They could remember what his voice sounded like. So Jesus was truly a man. And that data is everywhere in Scripture. We see it over and over and over again in multiple places. So we might say, okay, Jesus was the greatest of, of the prophets. Jesus was a great prophet. Well, he was a prophet, truly. He was the prophet that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18, but he was not just a prophet. He was not merely a prophet because the Bible also tells us that he is fully God. Where does it say that? Thomas Remember, doubting Thomas. Thomas said, I won't believe unless I can put my hand in the wounds. And then Jesus appears a week later and invites him to do so. Here, here's the wound. You can put your, your hand in my side. And Thomas responds appropriately, and he says in John 20, 28, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Jesus came back from the dead, and that could only mean one thing. Thomas knew what the Father had declared. He was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Who was the word that became flesh in John 1.14? Who was the word that became flesh? Well, it was Jesus of Nazareth. He dwelt among us, it says. He was Jesus. But what is said of this word who became flesh? In the first verse, the first two verses of that chapter, it says he was with God in the beginning and he was God. In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
So Jesus, the word who became flesh is God. The word who became flesh is God. He is the creator. It says that in John 1, 3. Jesus, the word of God, the second person of the Trinity, is the executive of all the Father's determinations. The Father says, let there be light, and the Son is the executive who makes it happen. The Son is the word who makes it happen. The Father said, let there be light. Notice the Father said, let there be light. And that said represents the action of the second person of the Trinity. Jesus made everything. Jesus created you. He created me. He is the executive of God. If it's made, he made it. If it is made, he made it. John 1, 3. God is the absolute creator. We see that in Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, who is that God? Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one who made all the worlds. Hebrews 1, 2. He is the one who sustains all things by the word of his power. That's Hebrews 1, 3. If it is created, then the word created it. If it is created, if it is made, if it is contingent, if it is dependent for its existence upon the will of the Father, then the one who brought it into existence and the one who keeps it in existence is the eternal word of God. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is that word. Jesus is that word. I remember years ago in a physics class, uh, we were learning about the nucleus of an atom. And the neutrons, of course, have no charge. There's the, they don't do anything. But the protons have a positive charge. And yet, with the, uh, numerous atoms, you've got a cluster of protons together. At the, so what do, but what do positive charges do? They repel. Like if you put two, two ends of a magnet together, they repel. So what is it that keeps the protons all bunched together at the center of this atom? What keeps everything in the cosmos from going, just dissipating? What keeps everything from flying apart? Well, fortunately, our physics instructor explained it to us. He said, we call that the strong force. Oh. (laughs) Oh. Scientists think they've explained things when they've only described things. Right? What holds everything together? The Lord Jesus Christ. But Christians believe that God created everything and everything is sustained. Everything is kept together. Everything is kept in existence by the will of the Father as expressed through his executive, who is the word who became flesh. The fundamental Christian confession is this. Jesus is Lord. That's in Romans 10.9. We must confess that he is the Lord. But what kind of Lord are we talking about? Paul supports his claim by citing Joel 2.32. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's Romans 10.13. Paul is quoting Joel 2.32 there in Romans 10.13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now because Romans was written in Greek, the word for Lord there is kurios. Kurios. And the Greek word kurios is just like the English word Lord. It could refer simply to a man, or it could refer to the creator. We could say, for example, Lord Shaftesbury, a member of the English nobility, that's a mere man, right? Or we could say the Lord God Almighty. The Lord God Almighty, we're referring, referring to the divine nature, or the Lord could be just a, a guy, just a, simply a man. And the Greek word kurios can 
it has the same range. The Greek word kurios has the same range. And so people pointed that, well, yeah, we have to confess that Jesus is Lord, but kurios can simply mean master. It can be a human master. That's, uh, that's no big shakes, except for Joel 2.32. This is the translation of what word in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, Joel 2.32 says, whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. So, the context delivers a staggering truth. The Hebrew passage that Paul cites says that whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. And so the basic Christian confession is this. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is Jehovah. But he, remember what we already covered. He was a man. He, he got thirsty. He had to walk to get places. He, had, he was limited, finite, finite, bounded. And he is Jehovah God. So he walks along the road to get places, and he, he spoke into existence every atom on that road. He spoke into existence everything that was all around him. It was held together by him and by his will. So this is why the person and work of the Lord Jesus cannot be separated. The person and work of the Lord Jesus cannot be separated. We are not cleansed and forgiven because we admit that somebody died. No, we have to look at this straight on. God took on human flesh in order to be able to die. He did this so that such a death would be followed by a resurrection, in which resurrection the identity of Christ would be proclaimed by God to the world. And this is the meaning of Christmas. This is why we celebrate Christmas. When Mary held the desire of nations in her arms, she was holding the body that would be broken and would be sacrificed for the life of the world. John 6, 51. She was holding the bread that would be broken for you. She was holding the loaf that would be broken for you and for me. The incarnation was the gift that made the great gift later, the crucifixion, burial, resurrection of Christ, possible. The incarnation makes the great gift possible. It's the preliminary gift. It's the prerequisite gift. So the incarnation is the gift that made the later, uh, we preached Christ crucified, that's what we focus on, because that's where our sins were dealt with, was in the cross and resurrection. So we acknowledge that. But what was it that made that even a possibility? And what will we do with this? How shall, we, how shall we respond to this? This is the child who was born to die. This is the child who was born in order to be able to die. Every child who's born into the world is going to die. We all are going to die. We all know that we're going to die. But Jesus was born into the world so that he could die. So that he could die. That was the point. His death was the end result. That's what he was driving for, so that he could secure your salvation. He was born to die so that you and I might live forever. This is the way. He is the door. There is no other door. There is no other way. And keep in mind that Jesus did not die for a crowd. He did not die for an indiscriminate mass. He died for faces and names. He died to secure your salvation, and he died to secure my salvation. And in order to be able to give you and me that gift, he needed a human body. 
And Mary was the instrument that God used to give him that body. He was given that body, a full and complete human nature, so he could lay that nature down, so that he could give up his life for the life of the world. That is the only way. That is the only good news. That is the only gospel. That's the only light in this dark world. Our Father and God, we thank you for your kindness to us. I pray that you'd help us as we meditate on these things, as we reflect on them. I pray that you'd help us realize that we, we stumble and stagger whenever we try to do justice to any of this. Help us to be edified nonetheless. Help us to be strengthened nonetheless. Help us to be built up nonetheless. Father, as we think about all these things, we would repeat back to you the words that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, so the Holy Spirit is present here with us now. As we come to this table, he is the one who makes all of it efficacious. Now, he's always at work, regardless of our disheveled condition. He deals with us when we come prepared, as we should have been prepared, and he deals with us when we come unprepared. God is never caught by surprise when we show up at his table in whatever condition we might be in. Remember that this spirit is a person, not only a person, but an infinite person, an ultimate person. It is his work to mold us into complete persons, restored persons, to build us back into what God intended for us to become in the first place. He is not a powerful but impersonal force like electricity. He loves, he gives, he admonishes, he grieves, he praises, he sculpts, he shapes. What he does as he works in our lives is to grow us. He encourages us and he knits us together in love. As he does this, we have to remember that he does not do it from some external position or place. He indwells us. Through his spirit, God has shed his love into our hearts. Put another way, he works in us by filling us. We are therefore to seek this filling. All true Christians are baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit, a once-for-all kind of thing. But the filling of the spirit is ongoing and can wax and wane, ebb and flow. This is why Paul can command the Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit as they submit to one another and as they sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So as you come to this table, if you feel somewhat tattered and broken but not filled, what, what should you do? Well, you should ask. Our Father is not stingy. He knows how to give good gifts to those who ask, and so we should ask for the Spirit to fill us in Luke eleven thirteen. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. You are Christians. That means you are called to follow Christ, walk in Christ, but you are, are to follow Christ, the Christ as revealed in the Bible. You're not following a mere man, and you're not following a divine apparition. You are following the God-man, the man who is the full expression of God's great and glorious deity. And only that Jesus can save you. And that is why you follow him. So with believing hearts, receive this benediction from your God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And amen.